Today on the Data Knots podcast, PCI DSS, what it is, who needs to care, and how it impacts your infrastructure if you do care. Joining us for the discussion today is Paul Snyder, an IT risk consultant. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. Chris Wall, at Chris Wall, is also here basking in the glow of his recently launched Netflix miniseries, Zero Latency Cloud. Now, I mentioned our guest, Paul Snyder. Paul, you're an IT risk consultant. Uh, who are you, man? What do you do? Anything you care to tell the audience that they've got some reason to listen to you? Yeah, so I work as a GRC consultant. Uh, I've been doing consulting for my uh, entire career. Started off doing consulting with IBM. From there, I worked as a, uh, a management staff member at a boutique firm based out of Southeast Michigan, and I ran their GRC program there. So everything from risk assessments, gap assessments, uh, gap analysis, working with a ton of different regulations, and PCI is one of them. I, I hold a, a, a ton of industry certifications. The most notable one, especially for this conversation, is C-Risk, which is from ISACA. It's their Certified in Risk Information Systems and Controls. And, you know, in the past five years, I've consulted on uh, over 200 different organizations doing those uh, different risk assessments and quite the focus on PCIDSS at times. Okay, this is going to be an acronym-loaded conversation, I can tell. Now, you said you're a GRC consultant. For people who don't know what that acronym stands for, what is it? That is governance, risk, and compliance. So working with all the nerds in the weeds and then also working with the uh, the big lawyers up top who like to talk with the big fancy language and trying to interface between everybody. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for the introduction. Now we know who you are and what you do. And uh, you used to work at IBM. Do you still have a closet full of suits? Was that a thing? No, that is not. That is not <laughs> something I was part of or ever had. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's start the conversation defining PCI DSS, Paul. Tell us what it is. PCI DSS is the payment card industry's uh, data security standard. It was founded by uh, the major credit card companies. I said, you know, if you're going to have our credit cards and you're going to use them, we need to help organizations and consumers alike secure them and have that mindset of privacy. So, you know, American Express, Discover, JCB, MasterCard, and Visa were the, the big companies that got together to create this. The DSS part of this, the data security standard, is part of their technical requirements for security compliance. It's the program that they run for compliance, uh, and it's just built to help organizations safeguard their payment data. And it's throughout all phases of that payment transaction. So before, during, and after, uh, the PCA DSS standard talks to all of it. Huh, okay. So so how is all this versioned? Because there's got to be old versions of it, different standards. And, and also, I'm curious, what, what version are we on? What is the current standard of it? Yeah, so the current standard, they actually came out with this in 2018, is 3.2.1. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with how Semantic does their versioning for a lot of their version controls with different automation tools. But, you know, they'll go like 2.0 to 3.0 is for huge, like life-changing changes, right? So they'll version them according to that. And for big changes, they'll go 3.1 to 3.2. So there's significant changes in the standards. So in 2016, they had 3.1 changed it to 3.2. And then 2018, they changed it from 3.2 to 3.2.1 because they're just little minor changes to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm used to it being major, minor and bug fix. I suppose it's major, minor and more, I don't know, regulation fix. What's, yeah, what is the know, third number B for you? The, 
It, it could be something very minimal like regulation. It could be something like, you know, a, a new encryption algor- algorithm was known to have a uh, a bug or, or an, an, a known exploit. And so they're updating it to have the most recent. So, you know, maybe that's just going from a 128 to 256 bit requirement. They might do something small like that. And you know, in all honesty, I'm sure there's probably some spelling or grammatical errors that they change too, right? They go from dot .o to dot .one and it'd be, hey, you know, uh, we spelled this wrong, but we're not really going to tell anyone. We're just going to kind of slide it in this next version. There's always going to be that kind of stuff too. Okay. Well, that, that kind of matches, I, I guess, what we're used to with semantic versioning. But but how often does that change? It, it sounds like pretty frequently if it could be just minor things. Yeah, you know, it, it, it depends who you ask. Some people might say it's fortunate and some people might say it's unfortunate. So seems like it trends to be every few years, you know, going in, like I said, 2016 is when they made the change from 3.1 to 3.2. I, I think we'll find that there's not going to be quite as many frequent changes now because PCI, you know, it's been around for a while. It's been a standard that's been well recognized, but it's starting to be something that's gaining a lot of traction. There's still a, a ton of people out there who say, oh, I don't have to worry about it. I'm too small. And that's starting, that mentality is starting to change Unfortunately for PCI, there's their fines aren't very heavy, and you know money is what drives the business. So for the most part, they they tend not to get a lot of cooperation from organizations who just don't care because the threat isn't there, like some of the new privacy regulations. I guess the the short answer to the question: I think we're going to start seeing less frequent changes, but it seems to be every few years we'll get some sort of update. Paul, at the top of the show, you mentioned the people behind PCI are the major credit card companies, Amex, Discover, JCB, MasterCard, and Visa. Can you talk a bit more about how this is organized? Is there a board or there meetings that happen that are driving the PCI standard from these folks? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's founded by those those big credit card companies. They have a representative from each company that sits atop the executive committee, I believe they call it. There are a handful of boards and committees underneath that too. So it's it's a very structured, vertical organization, the way it seems to be laid out. So they'll have advisory boards of consultants from outside companies who they'll help on the evolution of the standards. So when there's changes that need to be made or something happens in the industry, you know, there's this there's this progression of meetings and uh, what have you that go from board to board and uh, committee to committee. So they've got a ton of different little groups, so special interest groups, task force, uh, working groups, things like that that'll make up the majority of their organization. And then, okay, so now let's say I'm an organization that might be subject to, to PCI. Well, what kind of organizations are? I mean, obviously people that deal with payment cards, but is there is it broader than that? How would you define that? Yeah, so it, honestly, it's a great question because one of the biggest problems that I've seen as a consultant over the last four or five years is organizations who like to sit there and say, oh, "I don't have to worry about it," and, and I'll have to, and you know, I'll be somewhere doing something unrelated. We'll we'll be working through like a NIST cybersecurity framework, right? We'll be saying, "Hey, let's look at this," and they say, "Oh, you know, this server holds all these credit cards, but there's not that many." And I said, "Okay, well, what do you do for PCI?" And they'll come back and say, "Well, we don't even know what that is. We don't care. We don't." And I'm like, "Okay, this is a problem. So we'll get to it." At the end of the day, what it comes to is merchants or service providers. And people don't think of themselves as merchants because they're a not-for-profit, right? You know, sometimes you think of a a merchant or a service provider, you'll think of something maybe like a retail store or or something along those lines. The reality is if you accept credit cards, you're going to have some level of PCI compliance that you have to matter. So, you know, to that example, you'll have people come by in in these, these organizations I've worked at and they'll say, well, we don't have to worry about that. You're crazy. You're just trying to sell us something. We only do 
I don't know, 10,000 transactions annually. And, you know, I'll sit there and tell them, you know, that's great. You, you know, that's great. You understand what your transaction level is, but you're actually classified as a level four merchant. You know, they have their four different levels. So you're not exempt from the standard. You're just a level four. So your process for compliance, it's a lot easier than someone who might be a level one merchant. Most companies will fall into a level three or four, maybe two. But, you know, it, it actually, so I actually wrote down the definition of a merchant from PCI so I can actually quote that for you because I know that's something that people are going to want to look up or something that people are going to uh, combat and say, we don't fall in that. So PCI defines a merchant very strictly as any entity that accepts payment cards bearing their logo. So Amex, Discover, JCB, MasterCard, and Visa, those are the five. So if you are a merchant that accepts any of those, then you must be PCI compliant. Hmm. The level of your compliance is what will vary. PCI goes on to talk about, you know, if you accept the payment for goods and services. So so it goes on and on. So, you know, I won't cite the whole thing, but the very first piece of their definition is essentially if you accept their cards. So again, that could be a nonprofit zoos and universities that could be big retail chains retail stores restaurants anything like that yeah but what about for a company that uh, maybe they're an online company and they use stripe to do their card processing for them and they've got a a module on their website to accept payments do those people fall under one of these merchant classifications as well or in, in this case is all the pci compliance stripes problem just use them as an example yeah so there's a couple pieces to this, right? No matter what, you have to be compliant. If you are a fully outsourced company, so they call it card not present merchant. So you fully outsource everything you do to a third party, processing, transmitting, storage, all of the above. They're still using physical devices at your location. Or again, card not present, they're using your e-commerce site. So it still sits on your commerce site where they're processing. So there is still a level that you have to be compliant with. And again, you know, those questionnaires for those self-assessments, you know, those questions can range anywhere from a couple, maybe 10 to 20, all the way up to a couple hundred, so three to 400. And again, that just depends on your classification of a merchant. Got it. Well, Paul, you've mentioned a lot of different kind of levels and you've kind of teased that apart a little bit. Can we focus on that? And at least at a high level get an explanation as to what the different levels of PCI compliance are? Yeah, of course. They've got four of them, right? All of them have a a self-assessment questionnaire except level one. So, uh, you know, there, there's nine different types of SAQs, uh, self-assessment questionnaires. And the organization, they just have to choose which one fits best for their processing environment. And that goes back to the example that Ethan was just talking about, right? So if we use a third-party card not present merchant, if you use that third-party, you can do an SAQA is what is the one that works for them. Of all of the SAQs, SAQD is the most typical one because usually people use third parties for something, but not everything. Uh, And what I've seen over my years of consulting is organizations, as they become more mature, and with today's day and age of using cloud infrastructure instead of on-prem, we see a lot of organizations starting to transition from SAQD where they have, maybe they store it in an internal database or they don't store any data at all and they they transmit 
through their network, but they process through a third party. You know, that that doesn't make them a complete card not present merchant where they're fully outsourced. So an SAQA is not the correct one for them. That SAQD is still what matters. As these companies mature, they'll start buying services and realizing that compliance becomes easier if they're outsourcing more and more. So they'll start getting those vendors and those third parties vetting them and doing proper due diligence, of course, because everyone does that, right? And they'll move from that SAQD that's three, 400 questions long to an SAQA that's less than 100. It might even be less than 50 questions. And I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's less than 50 questions for that SAQA. I got to say, you cannot be in this line of work with dyslexia because SAQQSA. Yeah, yeah. Lens just in my in my mental picture of this. And kudos to you for capturing all of these acronyms and also expressing them as what they actually stand for. Because wow, yeah, you know, you know what's funny is I used to uh, in college. Um, you know, I, my freshman sophomore year of college, I did an auto parts store, and I think I gained dyslexia from working there because you get numbers that you have to go memorize at a cash register and then walk to the back and remember oh they wanted brake pad eight well one one eight nine and you go back there and grab one eight eight nine and you come back up and you're like oh man so if you go to an auto parts store you double check that number because everyone that works at those stores have dyslexia so half the time i'll go through and i'll talk to someone and you know i'll be an hour into a conversation and i'll switch from saq to qsa I won't even realize it. And I'd be willing to bet they don't even realize it. And it's just, <laughs> you're right. It's, it's alphabet soup when it comes to this. I also love the way you snuck in because everyone does their due diligence, right? Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Right. Sure. Yeah, everyone yeah. does that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul, I got one more question for you here. For impacted organizations, in other words, PCI does impact us in, in, in some way or another in our orgs. Is PCI compliance helpful or necessary? So this I would consider to be very controversial, and, and, and there's a few reasons for that. As with any standard or regulation, the intention is great. However, a lot of these standards and regulations are built by board members sitting at the top. So their comprehension of what happens at the ground level isn't always there. So that's why you get a lot of people who hate standards and regulations want to avoid them because they're not as easy to implement as they think. You know, there's times where I've gone to uh, uh, people who work in, you know, incident response teams, and they'll sit there and say, there's no way we can do that. We don't have the capacity to do that. We don't have the resources to do it. And, you know, it's it's a weird game, because you have to sit there and say, if you want to check that box, which a lot of people, that's all they want to do, read it black and white text, say, this is exactly what it's asking us, thou shall do this and slash or is in a lot of these things. So we'll say you have to do this and this or this if you do this. So there's like this this like if-then statement logic within all of these controls that you really have to understand and take that step back to read to understand where you're going with it. So the intention is there. The execution is, is very hard to interpret at times. With that being said, they do a really good job. They, they're very comprehensive in covering nearly all aspects. And as we focus on PCI, it's all aspects of card processing, storage, and transmitting. The problem is that PCI compliance, although it's great and it's required and it's needed, it gives organizations this false sense of security. Uh, you know, you'll have a CISO come by and say, or a director come by and say, oh, we're PCI compliant, we're good to go. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's great. You know, you're compliant, but let's take that step back and realize that compliance is only affecting your card data, processing, storing, and transmitting. 
So you have to align to a framework. You got to go higher level than that. You got to find somewhere else to grasp to find where you're going to make yourself more secure. Otherwise, you're you're getting that false sense of security. So it, again, it's very controversial. I think it's incredibly helpful and it's absolutely necessary. But you have to understand that you know I, I hate to use buzzwords, but defense in depth. This is one of those lines of defense. So there's going to be multiple ones there. You just got to find you know that that right blend. said money is what drives the business. And yes, that's obvious. But I guess the thought that I had or the takeaway is that it seems like the PCI standard area doesn't always have the biggest stick in the world. You're talking about fines and punishing those that have violations. You know, it's all relative. But I think it's interesting to me that this behavior remains consistent across technology focus areas. It's not just, you know, trying to pay down technical debt just never ends up working or having a disaster recovery plan. No one wants to fund it. Well, this is another area where potentially it's like, eh, we don't really care unless something really, really bad happens. We could just pay for it to go away in the, in the meantime. So I don't know, just, just stuck out to me as an interesting takeaway. How about you, Ethan? A very simple takeaway is that many companies don't realize they are subject to PCI when, in fact, they are. So everybody, even a small shop or folks that maybe outsource their card processing to other providers, need to consider how PCI impacts them. They might be surprised. Well, I definitely feel like I've learned a lot of acronyms and know a lot more about the different levels and whatnot. And that's great. But now let's actually determine PCI's impact on infrastructure since we're all kind of, you know, in that realm of engineering architecture and doing cool things with technology. And so let's start where actually I'm going to I'm going to steal some of your thunder here, Ethan. PCI, does it impact a segment of the network like a piece over on the corner of the data center or is it just hey, the entire network is now under the purview of PCI? Beware. So I'll start off by saying, since you love these acronyms, I'm going to be throwing a few more at you <laughs> because everybody loves acronyms. Hooray. Uh, Let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah, with, with that, let's dive in, right? So the, the problem here is a lot of people don't think about this until it's too late. So this is a really good question. First acronym, CDE. PCI requires organizations to define a CDE. Part of their evidence gathering will be network diagrams and such. Your CDE is a cardholder data environment. This is where I see a lot of people get nervous because if any system processes, stores, or transmits PCI data, it's part of the CDE. You know, some of the consulting firms that I've worked at in the past, what we would do is we'd come in with a blended approach. So we'd go and do our controls assessment so we could actually go in and measure compliance. But we do technical validation as well. So we'd use our red teamers uh, to come in and do a little bit of technical validation high level where we can say, hey, this is what you're telling us. Now we're going to go technically validate it to do our due diligence. Because remember, everybody loves due diligence. So we would come in and say, let's look at your CDE. First and foremost, let's look at your cardholder data environment and see where it is. We have a ton of customers that I worked with that would go through and they would start saying, we segment it so it's on VLAN 1. And you say, okay, great. Let's let's go look at that. So we'll grab firewall config files and we'll start looking through them and we'll say, hey, you know, we're noticing that technically speaking, they're segmented, but you don't have access controls in here to actually do that. Uh, you don't have anything in here to support the fact that they're on different v VLANs and you can jump from one to the other. <laughs> so let's make the argument here. Someone gets into your network through a VoIP phone. It's not on that network, but they have open ability to move from one segment to the next. Well, 
you could make the argument that, well, it's on, it's segmented, but it's not properly controlled. If you start reading through the actual uh, standard that says what you have to do, uh, that's when you're going to start finding um, some some big issues with defining that cardholder data environment. So we'll see a lot of uh, what's called scope creep. I'm sure what everyone's aware of what that is, but we'll start seeing a lot of scope creep in here when you get organizations um, who want to go from you know defining this cardholder data environment. And quite frankly, everyone wants to make that as small as possible because it makes your scope a little easier. But when you have problems segmenting properly, it really expands the scope of the project. Uh, and, you know, one of the probably the most interesting uh, uh, examples of this that I've ever run into was at a, a, a regional zoo somewhere. Um, they they had a really re I had a great time there. I, um, it, it was it was probably one of the most fun engagements I've ever worked for. And it was a nonprofit. It, it was hands down one of my favorite things I've ever done. Uh, and what it was is they had network closets in all of their different uh, animal exhibits. So when we sat there day one, we sat there and said, let's define this cardholder data environment. And you see, usually people pull up network diagrams. We'll start whiteboarding it out. No, this was the best. We grabbed a map of the zoo that they give to their customers. The people who walk through the front door, we grabbed a map of their zoo. And we grabbed a Sharpie and we went, oh, from the tigers to the polar bears and over to the penguins. And then it comes back to this data center here. And then you can also go from the monkeys to the to the, the African <laughs> safari all the way over back over to the polar bears and this and we started drawing this out and it was like this this tree and I was sitting there thinking about you know being a child watching Tarzan and him swinging through the branches of these trees and I'm realizing they are drawing this Tarzan tree through their zoo because they need redundancy if there's an issue in the penguin penguinarium and there's a big flood and it takes out that network closet they can't close down. Um, they'll lose a ton of money. So they have to have this redundancy to it. And it was this juggling game of finding out, well, how can we reduce the scope? Because when we first got there, everything in their environment was in the CDE and it made the scope near impossible to afford, let alone tackle in the, in the matter of a couple of weeks that they hired us to come in and do it. So we sat there with them and said, we, you know, we get the redundancy thing. You know, I've, I've done BCDR stuff in the past. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. So we sat there and told them, we understand this. Let's figure out a way that makes everybody happy here. Because for us to come in and tell you, you got to put PCI everywhere is not reasonable. But for us to tell you, you know, that you have to get rid of all your DR processes and just, you know, go, you know, all your credit cards go from your your front desk counters to your your tigers over to your penguins and back to the monkeys before it hits the African safari and the prairie dogs and then comes back <laughs> oh, is, is, is also ridiculous. So, you know, we found a way that we could find a couple routes that we could route through that took care of, um, you know, what we consider to be managing their risk very effectively and making that cardholder data environment a little smaller while also getting to talk about polar bears and penguins and all sorts <laughs> of other, you know, cool animals. So it was quite the, uh, quite the experience. So that, that was a long way to answer this question, but, but you know, the original question and for anybody that's forgotten at this point, are we talking about a segment of the network or the entire network that PCI impacts? And, and Paul, from that story, I'm gathering that the answer is it depends. Ideally, what you're talking about is a segment of the network and that segment of the network would have been thoughtfully designed in such a way that 
uh, your cardholder data environment is all confined to that one segment. Therefore, you can limit your scope of PCI impact to that CDE, cardholder data environment. However, all depending on what your network layout looks like and where data is flowing, where servers are located, it could impact everything, uh, just depending on where you've put all the stuff. Is that a, a good way to sum it up? Yeah, it it really is. And, you know, there's there's a ton of ways that people tackle this this problem. And I guess I'll say, for, you know, for the for the sake of that wonderful uh, example, I won't spoil it. But, yeah, it, it really comes down to proper access controls and proper segmentation, you know, to answer the question shortly. If, if you want to your best approach, segment it, but with strong controls in place to prevent poisoning from one VLAN to the next. But if you don't have those strong controls, you're looking at the entire network. Can you dive into that CDE a little bit of cardholder data environment from a context of, of the data specifically? What what data is PCI concerned with protecting? Yeah, so here's another acronym for you, CHD. Uh, so that stands for cardholder data. So again, this is just like SAQ and QSA. This is another fun one. CDE protects your CHD. At a minimum, your cardholder data is defined as the primary account number at its, at its very minimum. So that 16-digit number, or you know, sometimes it's 15 or 19 or however many digits, typically 16. But that PAN, the, the primary account number, PAN, that, that account number on the front of your card, that account number is the bare minimum. Then if you know people are familiar with the concept of PII, well, until the California Consumer Privacy Act comes out. You know, PII is a lot of combinations. So it'd be like your name and your birth date, but your birth date alone isn't PII. I mean, that's all about to change. I won't go off topic there, but they have a very similar setup to the way PII has been defined in the past. So if it's that primary account number, then yes, that is absolutely considered CHD, cardholder data. If the cardholder name the expiration date or that that CVV, so that service code, is also in combination with the PAN, primary account number, then that is also considered CHD, cardholder data. So how does PCI view data that's in flight, you know, moving from A to B versus data that's ultimately at rest? You know, kind of what's the differences and what's the nuances there? Yeah, so the, there's a there's a couple. That's a good question because there's a couple stages that they look at it. Um, and and just like uh, encryption looks at three things, not two, and that's a big misconception. You've got you know for encryption, you've got data in motion, data at rest, and data in use. So in memory, while the current uh, data you're looking at is decrypted, uh, you know sitting in your laptop in memory, people don't think about that. It's very similar. So they're going to look at a couple stages that they care about for that cardholder data, that CHD when it's being stored when it's being processed, and when it's being transmitted. So stored and transmitted, absolutely, but they also care about how the process works. The easy way to understand it is that they've got a couple controls. For example, that encryption, they'll have encryption requirements for data at rest and motion um, and you know, for, for processing for when it's in use. But there's also standalone requirements. You know, There's a whole set of requirements around physical access controls. So those are going to focus mainly at data at rest. And, you know, as you read through the standard itself, it becomes very apparent, you know, what is intended for what. They're very, very good about calling that out. Hmm. So there's there's nothing saying like you have to use this particular encryption or anything super detailed. It's more just architecturally letting you know, here's kind of what to think about as the data goes from you know where it began to where it needs to go through the transmission process, et cetera. Yeah, so so to to an extent, the actual technique that's used uh, can can be 
can vary in some cases. And there are some requirements that say uh, the you know the title of one of the 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 uh, requirements is is literally encryption for data in motion or in transit. Uh, so that kind of calls out exactly what you got to do there. Um, but, you know, whether you're deciding you want to encrypt or tokenize or mask the data, um, you know, re redact the data, there, there's a ton of different ways you can tackle it. And it just depends on what control you're trying to satisfy. And, you know, I, I can give you another a really cool story about how, how I saw a bank utilize redaction to handle this. They had their cardholder data environment defined, but they had a use case. So they had a bunch of phone reps had files that they would save places and they had a hard time controlling that, which is a really common problem we see everywhere you go as a consultant. You see people struggling to you know control their data, especially with BYOD environments and mobile devices. So they actually took a really neat approach to this. And what we ended up doing with them is redacting cardholder data. So we built out this program for them essentially in an en encryption solution that called a script. And what happened is they took their cardholder data environment, they left it defined, they had a server that they could use from a jump box to put information on from the outside. That was PCI compliant. They went through all the checks and they did a really good job at that. But when they found, they scanned their network. So they used a discovery tool in their network to find cardholder data environment. And they used a, uh, a good uh, custom built algor algorithm to find the cardholder information they were concerned about. They ran LUN checks against it, which is to find out if it you know, helped uh, negate false positives. And when they found it, they would do a couple things. They would copy that data in its clear text into the cardholder data environment. Uh, so they would store that 16-digit PAN number, or whatever it was, that PAN number in the actual cardholder data environment, so the CDE. Uh, and then they would redact the information from the file that was irreversible. So what we did is we replaced the digits inside that number, except what they needed for a very legitimate business use case with X's. So it wasn't reversible. And they used redaction to do this instead. And it worked really well. And it was cool. So it was, it was, a, it was a fun <laughs> little gig to work on there. <laughs> so, Paul, let's say I'm an infrastructure engineer. I am responsible for the cardholder data environment. I built it. I'm familiar with it. Are there tools that I can use to help me know that this environment I've built is, in fact, PCI compliant? Yeah, you know, it, PCI makes it really good. They're, they have a ton of self-assessment tools, and they also have something that they call a prioritized approach tool, which is pretty self-explanatory based off of its title, but it's right on their website. It's open source, free to download. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a great tool to have. So uh, I would highly recommend using those if you need a place to start. Now, if I've done all that, I've used the tools, and I believe that I am PCI compliant, does PCI compliance mean the same thing as secure? This is a great question uh, because no, it just doesn't. And if you say yes, then you probably shouldn't have that job. Uh, being compliant is a great place to start. With that being said, there are a lot of requirements that you have to do. It is required. You know, It's not something you can just negate because it doesn't make you secure but it's a really good place to start that helps you become secure. And again, not to use a bunch of buzzwords, but it's that defense in depth. Consider it that line one of defense for your cardholder data environment, for that cardholder data itself. It is that line one of defense, but that doesn't mean because you're compliant, you don't have to do anything else, especially because it focuses strictly on cardholder data, not all information. So you're not even thinking about PII at this point. So yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people like to get confused on this, but to sum it up, no, not at all. It's a great place to start, but no. Well, 
Boy, Paul's closing point really hit home with me, Chris. Uh, PCI is a starting point for security. You can't say just because you're PCI compliant that, ooh, I'm secure. And and that was a principle we live by at the payment processor that I worked at. I worked very closely with a security professional and we kind of came to an agreement that, yeah, PCI is a good place to start. There's lots of great information in here and, and, and strong guidelines and a good framework to protect cardholder data. But just because we were PCI compliant and always looking ahead to the next PCI standard, we didn't consider ourselves secure. We always looked beyond that to see what else we could do to further ensure that the environment that we were responsible to manage was in fact truly secure. And we did look at PCI compliance as part of a defense in depth strategy. One of the, 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 the cogs in the security wheel, if you will. What stuck out to you in this section, Chris? I actually found the cardholder data environment or CDE acronym interesting. I thought that concept was interesting. It kind of reminded me of like a virtual private cloud or VPC or like a logical data center sitting inside of a physical environment, or at least that's kind of what I'm hoping it transitions to because now I'm kind of wondering how much physical air gapping is required versus doing a logical isolation or using abstraction layers to drive a secured cardholder data environment. Paul, so for merchants that are subject to PCI, they are probably going to go through an audit process, I would assume. I I used to work for a payment processor, and we had audits that we dealt with that helped us with PCI and being compliant to PCI and so on. So I I was hoping we could talk about that a bit, kind of surviving that audit process. Uh, And maybe a good place to start is, what is an auditor actually looking for? Yeah, so I'm going to give you a a good two-part answer here, and it's going to be a little lengthy, but the, the important thing to realize to start off, first and foremost, when you think of GRC, so governance, risk, and compliance, when you think of standards and regulations, there are two main categories you can put any of them in, either a compliance or a, a certified. So if you're certified, that means you have an external auditor coming in and giving you a stamp of approval. So, you know, ISO 27001, that is something you get certified. It's a sexy little badge you get to put on your product. PCI doesn't really have that that auditor who comes out and does that actual uh, certification for you and gives you a PCI certificate saying, hey, you've reached you know certification. You've got those QSAs and those SAQs. So you have a qualified assessor or you, ha- you have a, a self-assessment that makes you compliant. So I'll take that kind of step back and go through, you know, phase number one, right? So they don't have those auditors, but they have the four levels of compliance for merchants. So, you know, depending on where you fall into, your most organizations are probably going to fall into a self-assessment where that's perfectly sufficient for what they need to do. You know, a lot of times they'll hire uh, external consultants to come in and say, we need that non-biased opinion because anyone internal is going to have some sort of political coverage that they have to be concerned with. So they'll start using external service providers to do something like this, like consultants. The other option a lot of people will do too, is if they don't have a budget for it, they'll just do it themselves. And that's fine. That is completely okay. It meets the compliance requirements of PCI. But the thing you're subjecting yourself there to is some some biased because the internal people, no matter what you want to say, the people internal to your organization will have some sort of political coverage that they have to take into consideration, or I shouldn't say they have to, but they do take into consideration. 
So, you know, do a guess a little, you know, risk analysis there to determine which one's best for you. But with that being said, you know, the highest level. So if you're level one, you, you know, you have to hire an outside party. So a, a QSA, which, you know, if you remember from from earlier in this conversation is a qualified assessor. So a qualified security assessor will actually come in to do that for you. It's really technically they're, they're still assessors, not auditors, but that's the closest thing you'll get to with a PCI audit. So, you know, to, to, to answer your question of what the, they're looking for, whether you hire assessors, who I should say are your friend, you know, assessors are there to help you in auditors. They typically say are, you know, to your point, they're, they're hard to work with at times. The way that I've always approached them when I've worked with auditors is, is very simple. Uh, you know, they're humans too, right? They're not just robots and machines, although we sometimes like to think that they are. But, you know, when they say what, what are they looking for, they're looking at you to check a box. If you can give them, and this, I guess, a tip of advice, if you can give them multiple pieces of evidence that are very strong and in support of each other, then you'll be in really good shape. With that being said, you never want to give auditors more than they ask for. But if you can give them two to three pieces of evidence that are really strong, nine out of 10 times, they'll probably move on to the next section. The other thing that they'll really look at is if something in your industry has been breached or made public lately, they'll usually dig deeper there because they're affected by emotions just like everyone else. I won't sit here and say auditors aren't boring. You know, they're definitely boring. Um, <laughs> so they'll probably be the people who watch CNN, right? You know, they'll be the people who are C-SPAN. watching these. C-SPAN. Yeah, C-SPAN, right? Yeah, they'll be watching these news stories <laughs> who will sit there and say, oh, you know, you know, Facebook breach, blah, blah, blah. Now, when I go do this audit, I'm going to think, keep this in mind. And yeah, maybe not the best approach, but they'll do it. So, you know, the, the what they're looking for, they're looking to check a box. They'll dig deeper. And a lot of times that's brought in by emotion. So if they're looking from, you know, maybe they're having a bad day or maybe you're being a meanie face to them and they're going to say, you're being a jerk. I'm going to dig in deeper here. Or again, you know, maybe they see that news story that pops out or your evidence that you provide them isn't sufficient. Though it's typically when they'll start digging a little deeper. Otherwise, what they're really looking for is for you to check a box. Now, you mentioned that Q- QSA, the assessor, is your friend. Are you comparing the assessor and an auditor as two different people, two different roles? Or if they're the same person, how are they your friend versus how are they your your enemy? If you're using a QSA, so a qualified security assessor, they're going to be the ones who their job's a little more on the line, right? So, so they're going to be the closest thing to an actual auditor that you will get through PCI. Technically not an auditor, they're still an assessor, but that's going to be where you get the closest thing to an auditor. When you do an SAQ, so a self-assessment questionnaire, if you hire a third party to come in as consultants, they will be your assessors. So not a, a QSA, an SAQ, and you decide to hire a third party, those are the assessors who are your friends. Um, you know, a lot of times as consultants, I'll go in somewhere and you can just tell they've got this brick wall up, like they're Donald Trump or something. They're just like, <laughs> we've got this big wall where we just don't want to let you in. And the second I look at them in the face and say, I'm here to help you. I am not an auditor. It's like that wall is just broken down and they're just pouring out all the issues they have to me. Yeah, because that assessor is there to figure out how to get you compliant. Let's look at things. Let's figure this out as opposed to failing you on a test. Exactly. Exactly. We're not going to fine you for not being compliant. We're going to show you, give you the proper findings and compensating controls to get compliant. 
Now, let's say you go through that process and it's like, yay, my assessment is awesome. Gold star. Who's looking at that? Are there external organizations kind of looking at your assessment results? Do you get recognized by the industry as being amazing at passing your PCI assessment? Or I guess even the other way around, like, wow, that was a dismal score. Uh, Just kind of like who's looking at what happens with the results of these assessments? Yeah, so kind of goes back to the statement I made earlier, right? You know, certified versus compliant. You know, it's unfortunately, there's not like a stamp of PCI approval. You get to go put on your products and all over your environment and whatnot, like like you do with an ISO certification. Um, but with that being said, again, because everyone loves due diligence and everyone's really good at vetting their vendors when they bring them on board. If someone has to be PCI compliant, they have to make sure that their vendors that they be using and sharing any cardholder data with or to that point too, also sharing or splitting a cardholder data environment with. So if you're a service provider, they have to ensure that you are PCI compliant before they can use you. The other aspect of it too is, again, due diligence, doing the right thing for the privacy of your consumers. So it's not really, again, anything, a big banner or flag you get to fly around and say, look what we did. But you know, if you are breached and cardholder data is stolen, You'll have some problems with fines from PCI. With that being said, it's also uh, something that vendors will look at when they're doing those due diligence questionnaires. Fines. This is the second time that's come up, but you said that they're not actually all that severe, the fines. How how are those fines calculated? I'm going to put it this way. How much a fine cost is very relative. Uh, And what I mean by that is it really depends on the organization. You might have an organization that says, we're going to risk, we're going to do some risk analysis on this and say, we can afford a million dollars a year in fines. That could put a, that could put a small business out of business. So it really depends. When I say that they're not that big, you have to look at some of the privacy regulations that just came out and like GDPR saying 4% of your organization or 4% of your profits are subject to fine. CCPA that comes into effect of 1-1-2020, that is $7,500 per record. And a record could be you know, three instances of protected data in one file. And that gets huge very quick. So there's a lot of people who are very, very concerned about that. In comparison for PCI, their fines are much smaller. You're talking a little bit like, I don't remember the exact number. It was somewhere between 10 and $40 per record. Again, it can add up. So it definitely has the ability to be detrimental. But compared to the other regulations that are out there, not that big. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's go back to the audit and, and assessments and so on. Uh, what documents should you gather if you're about to go through an audit? Okay, there, there's a couple things here. The, the easiest place to start, policy standards, procedures, and guidelines. If you have a documentation set built up, and everyone does, it's easiest to just provide those up front and give all of them that pertain. Look through the regulations, give what what pertains. That's the best thing you can do right off the bat. As in, these are internal documents that you've created because you know you're a shop that is dealing with cardholder data and you've written your own internal policies and procedures, standards, guidelines that describe what should be happening. It's not proving what is happening, but at least you've got a framework there that your company should be operating from dealing with that data. Exactly. And they'll have, you know, there's password requirements in there. So they'll say your passwords have to be X, Y, and Z. So, you know, they'll they'll look at two things. Do you write that into policy and procedure? So PCI will take two approaches to all of this, which is actually, this is a really good point to bring up here with what what you're asking about for gathering evidence for for that audit or that, you know, that compliance assessment. Um, You know, there's, there's really two big 
two big ways that they'll ask any question. So when you see a question, you want to approach it two ways. Can I prove it? And do I uh, enforce it? So when you look through enforcing it, a lot of it's going to say, you know, do you enforce X, Y, and Z? That's going to be your standards, policies, and procedures, right? Or guidelines if you have them. Um, the other part of that is going to be, uh, let's prove it. So you'll see a lot through the, you'll see a lot of times through that regulation, um, you know, give us uh, applicable configuration files, uh, give us firewall and router, uh, you know, logs, like give us, give us uh, network diagrams, uh, system inventories, even uh, you'll see sometimes they'll ask of, you know, evidence of activities like access control reviews or um, BC, uh, BCPDR activities. Uh, so uh, another big, big one is pen testing and vuln uh, vulnerability scans. So you'll see that huge as well. So the, the list is very comprehensive, um, but, you know, it, 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 it's it, at its highest level. You know, the evidence to prove that you support it and the evidence to prove that you do it. Uh, those are going to be the two biggest uh, pieces of gathering of evidence you can do. Oh, the vulnerability scans were some of my favorites because we would do them. We we had multiple ways that we did that. We had them scheduled by a third party to hit us externally, and then we did internal scans. And then we would, yes, in preparation for the audit, have all of those results and could hand them over. Oh, during this vulnerability scan, we found these problems, and this is what we did to fix those things, and here's where we stand today. But having all of those in a, in a nice, tidy report that we could hand over to whoever was doing the audit was uh, was a big piece of the puzzle for us yeah yeah absolutely it, it, it's it, like i said it's the the vulnerability scans are that 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 huge thing for them where they said do you do internal and external so it's not just let's give you something and it's going to suffice like some of the regulations will again a really awesome part about pci is they're black and white and there's not a lot of gray area there so they'll tell you we need external and internal vulnerability scans and we need them biannually so if you do them monthly they're going to love it if you do them um, biannually, you're good to go. Yeah. Wow. I could totally see Ethan doing these scans with like the, this is fine, flaming coffee cup, you know, cartoon. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let it burn, baby. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, we've heard a lot of good stories of, of definitely some challenges and triumphs from those that are looking to go through this process. I mean, just overall, where do organizations tend to fall short when it comes to PCI compliance? Yeah, so there's, a, I would say, three main things we could break this down to. If we're going to go where we tend to, I would say the three biggest are proper encryption controls for data at rest and in motion, building and maintaining a secure network with proper segmentation, uh, and the vulnerability management we were just talking about that you know Ethan is on fire about. <laughs> so the encryption, people people tend to not understand encryption as a technology very well. So they'll just say it's encrypted and, and move on from it, right? But what do you do with keys? How do you manage encryption keys? Do you rotate them? Who has access to them? You know, what do you do as far as updating encryption when you find a key has been compromised? So there, there's a ton of way that proper encryption controls can really help. And they just, a lot of people just fall short because of it. Um, the lengthy conversation we had earlier about network segmentation, a lot of people just don't think about segmenting PCI networks the way that they should. So, you know, they'll build and maintain a good network, but they don't put that proper segmentation and they'll have a firewall with a ton of VLANs that just, they can talk to each other freely because it just wasn't properly segmented. 
And then again, that vulnerability management program we just talked about, you know, they say annual pen test and biannual uh, vulnerability tests. Uh, so, you know, internal and external. And, you know, so it, it, it they define it really well. You just have to read it and make sure what you're doing meets those needs. And a lot of people just don't go all the way through it from the start. I got a concluding question for you. What What is next for PCI that organizations should be getting ready for? So they make you do these reviews uh, on an annual basis to be compliant. In the past about six to nine months, you'll see that they released 3.2.1. Um, you know, if, if you haven't reassessed your organization and your compliance against 3.2.1, that's the best place to start right now. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there isn't a lot of gray areas with PCI. What you should do to be getting ready for it if you're not start researching PCI on their website. They have a ton of free information. Uh, don't let all those consulting firms sell you a bunch of shenanigans without doing your research first because it's free. It's out there. It's easily accessible. It's ready for you to get to. And it's, it's again, it's free. So uh, go read it. If you have trouble interpreting it, that's when you start bringing in consultants. So start on their website. They offer tools to, to do this. They offer you the, uh, the information on how to go through the process of compliance if you aren't already. And, you know, starting with the newest one of three, two, one, if you haven't done it yet, is going to be the best way of going about it. Yeah, it's funny, boy, that part of the cycle hasn't changed back when I was working in a, a payment processor. It was always where are we at today? What standard is coming? And what do we need to be doing now to get ready for that next standard? So that's some history there uh, for me, but that, that part of things hasn't really changed. What URLs would you direct people to, or at least a website that you would direct people to where they could get that more information? So PCI's website, PCISecuritystandards.org, uh, has everything on it. And, you know, even to that that point of going from one standard to the next, what do you do? They publish documents that uh, highlight the deltas between one to the next. So you can't assess yourself only on the deltas. You know, you have to re-certify re, uh, yourself on what you had been compliant with in the past. But they call out, they have documentations they publish that show just the differences from 3.2 to 3.2.1. So you can see and understand uh, what that really looks like. And Paul, what about you? Are you social? Do you blog? Is there uh, any other resources like that so that if people want to reach out to you and read your stuff, they could do that? Yeah. So you can uh, follow me on Twitter at P.T. Snyder. That's P-T-S-N-Y-D-E-R. And I also have a blog uh, recently uh, revamped and started over on it, but it's uh, stateofthesock.com. So yeah, follow me on, on Twitter and follow my blog. And I tend to post once a week on the blog, except this last week when I was in Cabo. So yeah, follow me on Twitter and my blog. Excellent. And stateofthesoc.com. That is Paul's blog. You'll find him there. And we're going to have links to all of that in the show notes here. Uh, you can probably pull that up in your podcast player and find those there or go over packetpushers.net and look for the show notes for this episode of Data Knots. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach me via my about page at ethancbanks.com. And Chris is over at wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Knot shows about infrastructure engineering, visit packetpushers.net. All the good stuff is there. we got cloud, security, storage, compute, hyperconverged, automation. You get the idea. And if you need even more from the Packet Pushers podcast network, just search for Packet Pushers anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify. And until then, may your server lights blink, your payments process safely, and your cables be cleanly managed. (laughs) 